Welcome back to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here, joined by Yuki Tirada, the research editor from Edutopia. Edutopia is focused on the problems that K-12 educators are facing and does a really great job of curating the research that's happening in that space. Yuki, welcome back to Trending in Education. Thank you so much, Mike. Glad to be here. So when we last met, we were discussing what was on the horizon for 2020. And I think there was some good insight, some good perspective there. And it was a great opportunity to get to know you a bit and to understand some of the, the research that was out there. I would encourage our listeners to, to go into the back catalog, especially if you what you hear today, because there was some really interesting stuff there around really the top research articles from 2019 and then some perspective on what might be on the horizon for 2020, and then 2020 happened. And it's been transformative and challenging and troubling and, and many other uh, adjectives that aren't jumping to mind right now. I'd love to get a little bit of your top-level perspective on what the year has been and what it's been like for you as someone who is doing research and is editing the work of educators and education writers out in the world. What has 2020 been like and what are some of the themes that have been emerging through Edutopia's work? Right, yeah. So I'm trying to remember what we spoke about the last time. And I can guarantee you it was all wrong <laughs> because obviously, you know, the pandemic came. Yeah. And that changed everything. That changed the research agenda. That changed how we look at research. That changed the questions that we've been asking. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the, the, the research that I was, I was thinking about back in you know, uh, December when I wrote the article and when we spoke probably in January or so, a lot of those questions were suddenly, not that they weren't relevant anymore, mm-hmm. but we had had a lot of new pressing questions. Yeah. Primarily looking at you know, what's the impact of the pandemic. Now, what's the impact of COVID-19 going to be on students, on teachers, on families? Not just the short-term impact, but the long-term impact. Mm-hmm. All the strategies that teachers have in the classroom, do they apply in an online virtual classroom? Mm-hmm. And, you know, everything that we thought about education has shifted, and you can't expect a one-to-one correspondence between what works in the physical classroom and what will work in an online classroom. Because right. there's so many things that are different. So a lot of the things I've been thinking about lately are looking at, you know, what's worked in the past, what works now, and what's the difference? And how do we have to adapt to kind of this new uh, environment, this new situation that we're in? Right. Where even if you think something works, I have two kids, one's two and one's five. And for me, they're kind of a, a test bed for, for thinking about what's going to happen in, in schools. Because mm-hmm. I remember, daycare reopened. So after three months or so of daycare being closed and the kids being at home, daycare reopened. So we, we put both our kids in, back in daycare. And I think about four days after daycare reopened, my kid had a cough. So boom, got to get tested yeah. 14 days out of school. Yeah. It, took a week, it took a week for the test to come back mm-hmm. um, and 14 days out of, out of school. Right. So, you know, that kind of, that kind of example for me, it, it, it told me things that may come for schools because whatever plans we have, Right. We have to expect them to change abruptly. Mm-hmm. And if you think you're going to be fully online, fully hybrid, fully in person, you have to be uh, able to pivot mm-hmm. uh, really quickly because a lot of things that we want to do have nothing to do with learning necessarily, but right. about health. And if you want to keep kids safe, mm-hmm. then 
sometimes you just have to close the school. Sometimes right, you have right. to, you know, enact social distancing and mm-hmm. other uh, measures to protect protect kids. Mm-hmm. So really, that with, with my kid getting that cough and you know being out of school for 14 days, it, it it told me that one of the big um, ideas coming out of what's happening right now is that we really need to to have a a mindset where we are, we're able to shift and pivot mm-hmm. if if necessarily. So whatever plans uh, a school might make, plan B, have a plan yeah. C, have a plan D that's a mix of plans A, B, and C. Right. And you just need all these contingency plans to be able to adapt to what may happen. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of the old uh, military adage, uh, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. <laughs> and and unfortunately, I think the enemy is going to be uh, a pretty resilient one in terms of this virus. I know a lot of the research that, that I've read about the types of mindsets that set you up for success in, say, the next, in the future of work, in the next five to 10 years, they, they involve more adaptivity, resilience, flexibility of thought, and then also, you know, empathy and social emotional uh, learning. I have seen some of the articles that you've been writing of late that that do seem to be picking up, I guess, on two things. On the one hand, there's, you know, as you were mentioning, the how do we move successfully from face-to-face and online and still, while we're online, still get the feedback that we need, still understand how people are really doing when you don't always have the same nonverbal social connection that you get face-to-face on the one hand, and then on the other hand, there's, there's a lot of coverage of, of something we've been covering on the show as well, which is the, the, the problem of access, particularly for, for, for students who may not have access to broadband, they may not have access to a safe place to study from. Anything you wanted to pick up on around either of those, those broad themes, like research that's emerging around sort of the social emotional health and well-being of learners on the one hand, and then on the other hand, they try to understand how to wrap our heads around inequity and trying to be fair in terms of access, but also trying to meet each of each of our learners exactly where he or she is? Yeah, I mean, we tend to think of schools as the great equalizers, mm-hmm. you know, to, to quote a uh, man. And when we think of what's happening in a classroom and you have a teacher and you have students, you know, you can, you can stand, up, stand up in front of a classroom, you have all your kids present, and you kind of understand where kids are at. Mm-hmm. But when kids are at home and you're at your home and you're, you're separated by you know, so much distance and you have just the, the video conferencing software to interact with, you know, there's, there's a lot of information that could be lost, especially because when I wrote the article, so I wrote an article on using student surveys to improve teaching. Mm-hmm. And I started the article with kind of a, a, a funny anecdote. So this is, this is the story about Clever Hans, which, you know, I don't know if you're familiar, but I, I learned about him you know, when I was young. I think most people, a lot of people eventually hear about Clever Hans, yeah. who was a horse who, who could do math. So you go, five, what's five plus five? And the horse would tap, you know, 10 times. And everyone's like, oh my God, you know, the horse can do math. And the horse right. could even do really complicated things like today's Monday. You know, what day is it going to be? Seven days from now, mm-hmm. you know, your Monday. So the horse is a big, big story. You know, the horse that can do math. And they even did experiments to see if it was, if there was something, yeah. you know, if there was fraud going on. There were people um, in there. Yeah, yeah, what yeah. Found, what was going on? Yeah. 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 What, what, what they found yeah. out was, you know, even if the trainer, if, even if the horse's trainer wasn't in the same room, hmm. the horse was able to do math 
So that was like solid proof, solid evidence that the horse could do math. But eventually a psychologist comes around and does some experiments and finds out that what was actually happening was the horse was reading people's nonverbal expressions. So the horse was able to know when the right answer based off of the, the, the expressions on people's faces, mm-hmm. you know, people are holding their breaths. And when you, when you actually hits the right answer, you know, they let go and you can see, you can just see the look on their faces and see when the right answer has been hit. And so well, to me, the, the real funny thing about that story isn't that, you know, here's a horse that could do math, but ended up not being actually, Norris ended up not actually doing math. And, and you know, horse was forgotten. To, to, to me, what's amazing isn't that the horse could do math, but the, that the horse can read people's yeah. facial expressions. And my mind is kind of blown by the idea that we don't think of horses as social creatures right. who can read nonverbal uh, cues, like facial cues and expressions. Um, but it's amazing that this horse knew what the right answer was right. without actually knowing what the right answer is, just based off of the audience uh, response. Right. So with that anecdote, it kind of show that, you know, if you're a teacher and you're standing up in front of the classroom, mm-hmm. you usually you, know, you have a pretty good idea of when students get it and when they don't. Mm-hmm. And if there's eye contact, you can see, you know, puzzled looks. You know, it's sometimes hard to, to hide a puzzled look or a look yeah. of confusion. You can see when kids are whispering to each other like, oh, you know, what did he say? You know, what was, what was just said? You know, when, when kids are lost, usually it's pretty obvious. When kids are distracted, you can tell. Mm-hmm. But if, if you're in a virtual classroom, you know, a lot of that information is lost. Yeah. Especially when I think about, uh, let's take an example of conversations. If you're having a discussion mm-hmm. and you're all sitting in a circle, you don't expect every student to necessarily raise their hand high up if they want to contribute, if they want to step in. You know, some kids, you know, they'll just raise a finger. Mm-hmm. You know, some kids will kind of give a nod. There are many different ways that we kind of negotiate Mm turn-taking when we're physically present with each other. And they're very, very subtle sometimes. But if you have a situation where you have kids' faces on a screen, a lot of that information might be lost. And especially for introverts, for -hmm. kids who might be more reluctant to contribute in in a classroom, it might be a little bit more intimidating to to talk in front of a video camera and to talk on a video conferencing when you're one face out of half a dozen, 20, 30 faces. Right, um, right. So a lot of the things that we know about what good teaching is in the classroom, uh, not just about how we deliver you know, content, but about actual pedagogy, about how to get kids to contribute and participate, how to get mm-hmm. kids to engage. Those don't necessarily translate perfectly to an online environment. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, that's coming up a lot as I'm reading the research and th- thinking about what's different now is that oftentimes as teachers, we take for granted how we're actually instructional designers. Yeah. Uh, because if you're in a classroom, a lot of that is second nature already. Mm-hmm. You know, you're thinking about, you know, okay, right now I'm going to do some, some direct instruction. You know, I'm going to go over some basic concepts and then I'll get, I'll break kids off into, you know, small groups. Maybe we can do like a jigsaw activity or, or small group discussions or something. But, you know, a lot of that is second nature. And mm-hmm. if you've been teaching for five, 10 years, you don't even really necessarily think about what my words, right. you, you, you kind of take it's, for granted that yeah. when you speak, you know, your students are in the same room and they hear. Mm-hmm. But, you know, online, if there is a period of silence, sometimes it's hard to tell if students are actually silent mm-hmm. or, if some, or if there's a technical issue. Right. You know, for work, this happens all the time where someone may, might have a technical issue. 
and we have procedures in place where if they need a timeout, if they need to be able to, you know, take a break to fix it, you know, that's fine. Like if someone's talking and their audio is really staticky, you know, we'll say, all right, you know, there's something wrong with your audio. You know, right. let's, let's, take a, let's take a few moments to try to fix that. Mm-hmm. But things are different in the classroom because if you're a teacher and you're talking and, you're, and your students can't understand, there's no guarantee that your students will, you know, tell you, right. <laughs> you know, hey, yeah. you know, can you, can you please, <laughs> maybe they would, but there's, there's a chance that, you know, if, if a few words are cut off, that, you know, it's just lost information. Right. So it's really important because we don't get that feedback in an online environment that we would get in an in-person environment mm-hmm. um, because we don't get that feedback as much and because we're not used to, we don't have protocols in place to kind of get that feedback. It's really important to be kind of intentional mm-hmm. about getting that feedback right. and about and, and intentional about the instructional design of your courses because now there are things that you have to think about that you haven't thought about before. Like should you have every kid like on Zoom, you can have um, active speaker go up or you can have like your, your Brady Bunch <laughs> configuration where you have, you know, all the heads. Kids pay attention just to you or should mm-hmm. kids pay attention to the entire class? Mm-hmm. That's a very intentional kind of way of uh, designing the experience for kids mm-hmm. because if kids are only paying attention to you, that, you know, inhibits group discussion and facilitation. But if, if you have kids, if you have the Brady Bunch configuration, if you have all the faces um, in the grid format, that's, that's a different way. And that's not something we necessarily think about because it, it's second nature to a teacher where, you know, if you're going to spend five minutes talking, you get up in front of the class and you talk and, you know, your students listen. But then when you want to do small group work, you know, you reconfigure the classroom. You don't even really think about all, all these technical issues because mm-hmm. it's just second nature to you. So. So I wanted to write an article really looking at the, the role of communication and feedback. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and uh, the, the, the interesting uh, wrinkle in the Clever Hans story is he went on to be a brilliant uh, professional poker player. So not everyone, uh, <laughs> not everyone knows, knows that aspect to the story. But, but yeah, no, I really enjoyed, I, I love the connection to, to sort of a, a narrative that I can wrap my head around. And uh, it's not quite a talking horse, but it's close. So I, I do like, I do like that. And um, the idea of finding different ways to solve the problem gets back to that previous point we were making too, just about the flexibility of thought. So empathizing with educators who come from all different sorts of backgrounds, different points in their lives and their careers, struggling with the same challenges we're all facing, whether it's kids at home, whether it's working from home with a spouse, you know, there's a lot on educators to manage the change just to stay at parity with where they were face-to-face and then they have the additional challenge of shifting that online there were a lot of stories in the spring about you know emergency remote teaching and how it was kind of terrible in some places so much so that there's really a push now to get back into the classroom face-to-face but we all know that even that scenario of face-to-face is not going to be the same. You're going to have fewer students. They're going to be hybridized. They'll be in, they'll be out. As someone who talks to educators regularly, I know a lot of the, the writing that comes across your desk and goes out through Edutopia is written by K-12 educators. What's your general sense of where they are emotionally and psychologically and professionally heading into the fall you know we're taping this in august 
everyone is very curious, you know, what even a month from now is going to look like. And a lot of that's going to be powered by educators, you know, who, who really need our support more than ever. So as someone who does that really more directly than just about anybody I know, what, what, what's, the, what's the spirit of the troops like these days? Probably the, the biggest uh, takeaway right now is that it's okay to not know everything for certain. It's okay to have, things are going to be tough and they're, they're tough for everyone. No one has all the answers. So if you haven't figured anything out yet, that's totally fine because we're all in the same boat. We're all dealing with things, you know, day to day, week to week. We all have to be able to pivot you know, at a moment's notice to be able to adapt to, to whatever comes you know, at us. So I, I think one of the, one of the best pieces of, pieces of, of advice is be comfortable with uncertainty mm-hmm. and, you know, not, don't just have, you know, a plan, but also have a plan, uh, a backup plan and also plan for uncertainty yeah. uh, because sometimes there's a lot that you, you won't know. You won't know things. And there's so many things that are outside of a school's you know, own control, like how much community spread there is you sure. know, of uh, COVID. And that, that's going to play a large role in what you do. So it's, it's hard to really anticipate what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's hard to anticipate when there might be an outbreak. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to be able to be comfortable with several plans. And what ties into that and what's really important is supporting teachers as mm-hmm. much as possible. Mm-hmm. because you can't you can't support uncertainty without putting teachers in a position where they can safely you know take risks because you have to give teachers kind of the space and the flexibility to be experimental because no one's going to know exactly what to do and whatever plan anyone comes up with will probably fail because so much so much, uh, there's so much uncertainty. When I was talking about my kids, one of the biggest kind of one of the metaphors I've been reading a lot is flipping the switch. So you have to be able to flip the switch. You have to be able to go from hybrid to online mm-hmm. to in-person yeah. and be comfortable, but also not try to develop three different kind of systems. You know, you don't want to necessarily have, okay, here's our online approach. Here's our hybrid approach. Here's right. our in-person approach. Mm-hmm. What I've seen, an effective approach I've seen is, you kind of try to design for one system mm-hmm. and then adapt the other two. And typically what I see is that trying to design for a, a remote experience tends mm-hmm. to be harder. Mm-hmm. So it's a good place to start because once you figured out that, then it's much easier to go hybrid and to go in person. Yeah. Um, so a lot of teachers right now are struggling with, oh my God, you know, I have to now design, you know, two separate sets of lessons. Right. You know, one for the kids who are at home, one for the kids who are in class. And that's pretty hard to do. Teachers, we're already full. It's not like we have tons of extra free time. Right. You know? So it's very difficult to be able to just tell teachers, all right, you know, whatever curriculum plan you were doing, now just double it. You know, that's, yeah. that's impossible. So it, it's good to try to look for those little ways where you can make the job easier on yourself, which is looking at, like, how can I, how can I design my class uh, to be remote and then adapt uh, in-person learning to it? Yeah, makes sense. It also, it does seem like a time when, you know, one of the articles that I saw from you was about the the shift when a lot of the standardized testing went online, that that caused a decrease in scores, and a greater decrease in scores for kids who who are more in need. And understanding that, 
even a understanding that to begin with, I think is a good foundational piece, but then also just giving educators, giving teachers time to understand those inequities and understand the, the challenges that they're facing so that they can be a little more personalized. It does seem like at an, any given moment, the number of students that teachers are going to need to be teaching will be fewer. Like there'll be smaller groups due to social distancing. Online may be different, so I'm not sure exactly how that's going to work, but it does seem like there's more of an opportunity, uh, and it does from some of your, your writing, you've been saying do this online as well, to not worry so much about did you, did you get the homework done? Did you, you know, could you learn these concepts better? But more so, how are you doing? Like, are you okay? How is your family? How, you know, what's, what's your home life like? Do that in a way that is, you know, has enough privacy and consideration of your students so that they're not exposed in ways they don't want to be exposed. But, but just in that, like, you know, in-person class, a great teacher will be there for her students in a way that's more than just delivering the curriculum. I think now, more than ever, even a moratorium, I've just had a guest on recently who was uh, suggesting a moratorium on standardized tests and a moratorium on traditional grading measures until we get this figured out. Do you have any perspective yeah. on that? Are, are you hearing those themes? Do you have any thoughts on how, how, do we, how do we almost take enough pressure off faculty so that they can really meet the emotional needs of students and themselves which which is going to be really profound yeah i mean social and emotional learning it you know to me it's always been big and it i know it's it's odd to say it's even bigger now but mm -hmm. it's even more important now uh partly because you know we're we're under, under a pandemic there's chaos <laughs> Yeah. There's you, you you don't know what kids are going through at home, mm -hmm. and if a kid you know is 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 experiencing lots of trauma, lots of if they found out a friend or family member has just passed away, mm -hmm. that's going to affect their learning. That's going to affect mm -hmm. how present they are in the classroom, and you need to really be able to give them that space to to process those feelings and emotions. Something I've been hearing a lot is give grace. Mm -hmm. Whatever situation kids kids are going through, you know, give grace. Give them a moment to be able to collect themselves. And if they're not ready, then that's okay. Right now, this is a time when you have to be okay with letting kids take a few extra minutes to be able to think through things through and mm -hmm. to be able to collect themselves. And that applies uh, not just in interactions with uh, students and teachers, but you know, it also applies to what you were talking about previously with standardized tests and, and grades. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in, in a quote-unquote ideal world, <laughs> these things test learning, right? Right. But, you know, if a kid has, you know, a tragedy, if a kid is experiencing a tragedy, you, you're no longer, you know, a grade is no longer a reflection of learning. It's a reflection of something else. It's also a reflection of what that kid is experiencing. Mm -hmm. So if you see, if a kid, you know, if a kid's grades drop, because they had a death in the family, mm -hmm. I don't think it's very fair to penalize for them, penalize them for that. You know, you mm -hmm. need to be able to give them space. So ultimately, you want your measures of learning to be accurate. So you want standardized tests to be accurate, to actually mm -hmm. measure learning. And if they're being biased by, by all these other factors, then you want to think about that and really reassess 
how how good of a measure it is, whether it's grades or a standardized test. Yeah, yeah, it does. It has made me reflect a lot on how much we rush our educational program. It's very time boxed where you have to reach these milestones by these points in time in order to continue to stay caught up. The whole idea of learning loss, which I know you've written about and you've covered in a lot of interesting ways. But, but in some ways, I think many folks can and will catch up. And a lot of the panic is just of this moment. And if students take a little longer to go through their educational career and their educational arc, whether it's pre-K right on through lifelong learning, you know, K-12 higher ed, wherever, wherever it is, that whole concept of grace, I'm, you know, I have heard multiple folks talk about that. And, and it, it also reminds me of the idea of, you, you were saying it just now too, giving folks the, the time and give ourselves the time, give ourselves the freedom to not be on this rush to achieve these, these things that we thought were really important, but I, I, it does feel like it's a time to reflect as well. So have you noticed more reflectiveness in yourself and in your writers and in what Edutopia is putting out there? It sounds like even the way you were reflecting on what we had talked about in, in January as, as really being very different than the way maybe you're thinking about things now. Are you picking up on a little bit of that these days? Yeah, well, when we talk about learning loss, I, I kind of have a love-hate relationship with the idea of learning loss because uh, on the one side, to me, it's very important to be able to look at how students are doing and to look at test scores. But to me, it's not about the actual test scores. To me, the test scores are an indication that something else might be going on. Mm-hmm. So I'm not thinking, mm. you know, how can kids catch up? I'm thinking, okay, you know, if a kid, you know, typically gets straight A's, but then one year is getting D's. Mm. I'm not thinking, okay, how do we get that kid back up to an A? I'm thinking, okay, did something happen? Like, did something happen in that kid's life? Mm -hmm. So to me, when we think about test scores, there there are lots of different um, perspectives on the value of test scores. Mm -hmm. Um, But for me, I think test scores are still valuable because in in many ways, they kind of help identify inequity. Mm -hmm. So if you see, if you see a gap between students who might have a computer at home versus students who don't have a computer at home, it's not about necessarily figuring out what to do to close that gap in terms of the test scores, but trying to figure out like, okay, so now that I know there's a gap, what are the underlying reasons for that gap? Is it because students have different access to technology at home? Is it because you know some students might not have a quiet place to study? Mm-hmm. Is it because you know, there's so many different reasons. So for me, when I see research on learning loss, I'm not necessarily focused on kids catching up, but I'm focused on making sure that we make sure that no kids fall through the cracks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And sometimes when you look at the test scores, it can be a potential indication that a kid needs support. And the support doesn't necessarily have to be academic. It doesn't necessarily have to be, okay, let's throw academic interventions at that kid. Right. Um, to me, what might be the bigger story, the bigger picture, is that that kid might need a non-academic intervention. Maybe they need counseling. Maybe right. they just need to, you know, be more engaged in, in class. Maybe they're bored. Maybe they're bored in class. There's so many right. different reasons. And until we know what those reasons are, we can't really support the kid. So that's my 
love-hate relationship with us. Yeah, yeah. And I've recently come come around to the language of the opportunity gap as opposed to the achievement gap. Right. Where if there is this disparity in scores, if you care about the score to begin with is, is one thing, you know, some of those measures may in fact be biased, in which case we need to be flexible enough to let them go. But assuming that there's no bias in the assessment, there just are gaps that exist. Those are opportunities, you know, they're not, the, the, yeah. rather than looking at it as achievement, like, oh, great job, Jimmy, you did, you did better than Susie. Instead, it's like, Susie, you have an opportunity to grow and let's understand where you are and figure out how you can get better. I think it's just a, a shift of mindset. I would like to touch briefly too on the, the issues of racial equity and, uh, you know, in light of the, the Black Lives Matter movement and the uh, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, et cetera. How, how are the folks you're connecting with and, and the articles from Edutopia, how are you understanding how to address some of the new issues that are emerging, even though they may, they may be longstanding institutional problems on, underneath, but the fact that these are bubbling up to the point that they, they likely need to be addressed in class, how are educators and how is Edutopia trying to lean into some of that stuff? Yeah, absolutely. It's very important to look at systemic racism and to tackle it head on. Mm -hmm. And one, one of the first steps is being reflective about your own biases. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll just say right now, everyone is biased in a way. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to necessarily be racial bias. It could be any kind of bias. But, you know, just the way we're wired, the way evolutionarily we, we developed, uh, we make shortcuts. You know, mm -hmm. shortcuts mm -hmm. are important. Uh, they help us understand, you know, when to spot, you know, danger. You know, if, if, if a bear is running at you, you're not going to think, you know, oh, you know, what kind of bear is it? <laughs> is the bear hungry? Is the bear not hungry? You're not going to ask these questions. You're going to think, okay, you know, there's, there's, you know, something in my brain made me not necessarily look at the bear specifically, but look at the bear broadly and see it as a danger. So our brains are kind of wired to make these huge patterns, to, to construct patterns out of like all the information that we have. And that gets us into trouble because that shortcut can be really detrimental to actually understanding what's happening. So people, unfortunately, make patterns about any kind of stereotype you can think of. Mm -hmm. And stereotypes exist because our brains can't really process the amount of information mm -hmm. that would be required to evaluate every individual mm -hmm. kind of interaction independently. Mm -hmm. um, so stereotypes, in some ways, they can help. You don't need to get burned by fire every time right. to know that things are hot and you can right. get burned. Once it happens, then you figure it out. And then you figure out that you don't have to be burned by the same kind of, like if you get burned by a match, now you yeah. figure out, okay, you know, there's, there's, there's a piece of paper that's burning. I can make that jump. Your brain's able to make those jumps, but those jumps get us into a lot of trouble mm -hmm. when we come to the wrong conclusion when we see patterns that aren't really there yeah. or when we project patterns that aren't really there. Mm -hmm. So what was a, a cognitive advantage it, it is now a, a flaw. It, it works both ways. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, a lot of it is just thinking about your own biases mm -hmm. and how you might be unintentionally, think unintentionally falling into the trap of stereotypes and stereotypical right. thinking. And one example where this can happen without you realizing it is if, you know, if you love science and all the people, you have Doctor Who, <laughs> you have, you know, Jean-Luc Picard, uh, yeah. you have, uh, you know, if, if just unintentionally 
all the people that you're talking about are, you know, white, male, mm-hmm. um, then you're unintentionally creating a stereotype and you're perhaps um, making it so that students who don't necessarily look like the people you're talking about might uh, not feel like uh, they belong mm-hmm. in the field of science. Right. Uh, so you want to make sure that you're thinking about your own practices and you're, you're intentionally trying to be diverse. And I don't mean mm-hmm. just diverse racially, but yeah. I mean diverse in interests. You know, you don't want to talk about sports all the time because right. back in maybe if you're, you know, doing physics, if you're teaching a physics lesson and you're, all your examples, all your metaphors are about sports, some kids might not necessarily, not necessarily be into sports yeah. um, and it might be a little turned off by, by your, your conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's very important to have an empathetic approach mm-hmm. and to think, okay, not just what am I interested in and what, what do I think about, but let, let me try to really think about the perspectives of my students. And mm-hmm. am I speaking in a language that they can relate to? Mm-hmm. Can, they, can, can they connect to the material the same way I have? Mm-hmm. And, and if they can't, then what can I do to uh, cross that boundary and bridge that gap mm-hmm. and to talk about things that they're interested in? Because then they'll get engaged and, mm-hmm. and they'll be interested. So when you're talking about George Floyd, we really want to think about how culturally relevant our instruction is. We want to be able to present the curriculum in a way that's relevant to students. One, one of the worst examples I've seen is when a textbook called Slaves Workers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you, when you use language like that, when you use language that is culturally insensitive or even culturally hostile, mm-hmm. then you, you're, you're not really thinking about what it means to, to be black in your classroom because right. you've taken a position uh, that is very clearly against what your students might be thinking. Mm-hmm. You want to be able to be empathetic and to think about like what's their perspective and not, not kind of reinforce the, the, the status quo. Yeah, and it's also a time, to your point, I think to to seek out difference and to try to understand perspectives that are different than your own as an educator. And, and then I was also wondering, you know, cause I think we're coming, coming up close to time. I have one quick question that I'd love to get more, some parting thoughts from you, but how are you thinking about the role of parents in education, which I know is a huge topic, but it does feel like in a lot of ways, the ways in which parents have been, pulled into the educational experience in more profound ways than, than probably ever before was a really transformational thing that, that began in the spring. And to a certain extent, it's probably driving traffic to Edutopia and maybe listenership to this show is that now suddenly there's a much broader interest in education because people understand, oh my God, if my kid's at home, I, I may be on the hook to deliver a lot of this stuff. And then also I can see what my kid is doing when she's engaging in her remote learning. I have a different perspective on that than when, you know, out of sight, out of mind, they're in school and it's somebody else's concern. Any thoughts on how, how the, the level to which parents are being engaged in the educational experience of their kids is a, is a big change that's happened this year? Yeah. It's so much more important now to listen to parents and to to get parent feedback. And um, a big reason why is because a lot a lot of the things that we do in school in terms of equity have had decades to mature and become systematic. And one example would be something like ramps in schools. You know, mm-hmm. so if a kid is in a wheelchair, you now it, it took 
took quite a long time, but you know, we got legislation passed and now it's pretty standard that we have an actual uh, systematic approach to how we support kids with disabilities. Right. So many teachers don't think twice, they take it for granted, uh, but a lot of teachers do think about this. It's very easy to forget that, you know, it took a lot of work to get ramps installed in schools and to make yeah. it so that that's an actual legal process and it's systematized and it's not some, it's, it's very easy to take that for granted. Mm -hmm. But now that we have a new kind of environment, a lot of those structures that were in place are no longer in place. So the parallel would be if you have materials that you put online that can't be uh, read by, by a student with a visual disability. Yep. It's not something that you might think about, mm -hmm. you might have thought about before because you had, you had specialists, you, have, you had actual yep. district support, you had lots of people. And on top of that, you had lawyers who made sure that schools were compliant. You know? And so there are a lot of systems in place. So in, in this current environment, you know, it's really important to get feedback from students and from parents to make sure that all your materials are accessible. Mm -hmm. Make sure that if you are expecting your kids to do homework, that that's actually doable, that, that that's actually feasible. Because if a parent you know, is working full time, plus taking care of their kids during you know, remote learning, mm -hmm. there just aren't enough hours in the day. And maybe some of the things that you used to do, you have to think twice about and mm -hmm. be critical about. So it's, it's really important to, to involve parents mm -hmm. in the process right now. Because like you said before, you know, a, a parent can send their kid off to school and not really have to think about what the kid is doing in school. But if a kid is at home with the parents, now you're basically co-teaching that kid. Yeah. You're both responsible for making sure that that kid has everything he or she needs mm -hmm. to be able to learn. And that doesn't mean just having a computer and having access, but it also means having the, the emotional support to be able to learn. So it's, it's very important, I think, to get parents involved and to make sure that for, for the sake of children, that we're supporting them in any way possible. Yeah. And then at the same time, understand that some kids are going to be in family environments where they don't necessarily have the support of their parents. So how do you address them? And, you know, it's a, it's a very complicated world that we live in, uh, Yuki. And, and then I do realize, uh, you know, as I was reflecting on some of what you were saying, it's got to be a really hard time for perfectionists and for people who know they want something to be done in a very precise way and they're, they, they've learned it and they've got it down pat because it's more a time to be a little bit improvisational, a little flexible and uh, dynamic in your thinking. So for our perfectionist listeners out there, we do, we do feel for you. Come on over to the other side. You know, things can, you can figure things out. It just have, it requires a little bit of letting go and a little bit of seeding of, of control. And it does remind me of, you know, the idea that any feedback is a gift and then frequently negative feedback is, is the greatest gift. It's just sometimes it, it hurts, you know, so some just allowing you to feel that, but then realize, okay, what can I do to respond to this? So, you know, we're not frozen in time. We can actually continue to get better it is a great takeaway. Uh, as we're coming up to time, Yuki, one thing that has uh, struck me as I've been talking to more folks in education is that despite all these enormous challenges, many folks are optimistic. Many folks are expressing hope around the elevating of consciousness that is happening as we're all going through this shared suffering, for lack of a better word. Any parting thoughts uh, from you just in terms of where we are, how are we going to get through this? 
any words of uh, courage, little fireside chat for folks who might be <laughs> listening? Where, where are you at and where do you think uh, we're headed, at least in the near term and maybe a little bit further down the road? Yeah, I mean, to me, it, just the biggest thing for me right now is to support our teachers, mm-hmm. make sure that they have everything they need to be able to teach effectively. And tied to that is, you know, support our schools, give, give schools the resources they need uh, and the space they need to be able to plan and uh, adapt. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, things are very tough, but we'll get through this. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And uh, we'll get through this with folks like yourself, Yuki, and the great uh, team over at Edutopia providing really wonderful resources. I would encourage folks to check it out, particularly if you're a K-12 educator. But as I mentioned on the previous show, I think it's really useful now for parents to be checking out these types of research materials. I think there's a lot to be learned from folks in higher ed and beyond. You know, uh, just a quick, uh, quick anecdote as I close, you know, I, f- I forgot how powerful social emotional learning was until my uh, 20-month-old son started watching Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood and being educated on just how to share and how to work through your feelings. It does feel like there's a lot for us all to learn and grow on through all of this. And thanks again to you, Yuki, for, for your contribution and for the contribution of, the, of folks like yourself who are trying to really equip educators in this trying time. And thanks again to our educators who are listening and for folks who are trying to make a difference in the world of education. We know it's a hard time, but as Yuki was saying, we, we are gonna get through this. Thanks again, Yuki, for your time. Thank you, Mike. And for our listeners, we'll be back again soon. Thanks for listening to Trending in Education.